So as we end the new year here, when we started, or end the old year, start a new year, excuse me, um, we're looking to the future, so what we're going to be doing for the next several several weeks, probably the next three or four months, um, is going to be, we're going to be covering the Sermon on the Mount. So all three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew, so that's where we'll be today. Uh, we're going to just do kind of an introduction today. Um, just kind of set the context, set everything up, why, why it's important, what it means, and really it'll also kind of drive us through the year to go and make disciples. Right? That is what we're here to do. We're to go out and teach people about Jesus. Um, and so that's what we need to make sure we know what to teach them. Because right? unfortunately people kind of have their own ideas about things and sometimes we come up with some interesting or disturbing uh, ideas of what the scripture says and so people know the Sermon on the Mount at least they probably are familiar with a little bit of it um, and so we were already in God, uh, Matthew's gospel for the last couple of weeks for Christmas anyway so we will be covering that now um, right we're going to start fresh so the end of Matthew's gospel is is a new beginning right because Jesus has been resurrected and he's he's ascending to heaven and he give us this he gives us these instructions uh, in chapter 28, verse 18, he starts, he says, Jesus came near and said to them, so his, his apostles, his disciples, says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, so the people who are new disciples, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? And we kind of covered that over Christmas and about being with you, right? Emmanuel, God is with you. So he, he ascended, but he's still here. He's still on earth. The kingdom is here. And so we are commanded to go teach the new disciples the words of Jesus. But the question really is, how well could we teach what the gospel means for our everyday lives? Right? How well do we know the gospel, just past just the gospel that Jesus came and died for our sins? But what does that mean? Right? What does this mean when we're bringing in new believers into the covenant? And so what does Jesus really tell us? You know, we have the Gospels. We have the four Gospels that capture Jesus' life here on earth, his lifetime. There's a lot of things that get said. There's a lot of things that get misconstrued. There's a lot of things that get taken out of context. And so we need to make sure we have the right context to teach people. And we're living it as well. Right? That's the other part of it. We have to be living it as well in order to be able to teach it. Right? And so... Part of this reason is we come here to teach, to listen to me or the other any elder who teaches or preaches, partly because I can't be everywhere you guys are at. I know people and I talk to them and you know, you, each of us knows people. And so together we make, we can have these discussions multiple times every day with different people. And so it's the job of the elder to make sure that, you know, you, you guys are educated in, in able to teach these things to people as well. But what happened to say, well, let me go ask my pastor. You know, we should all be teachers and preachers of the word in some respects. And so we're here to teach everything that Jesus commanded. That's what Jesus says in the, in the end of Matthew. So there's no really other consolidated instruction point from Jesus himself other than the Sermon on the Mount. Right? We have all of his saying, but here we have three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, they're pretty much compiled. It's his sermon that he gave to the people. 
very early on in his ministry. So this is kind of the groundwork because a lot of the, the epistles and everything else kind of flow out of these words from Jesus here. And so here, Matthew, the gospel writer, he puts Jesus' teaching on display. And like a good teacher, there's always some expectation to recall the information at a later time. When I, when I taught, um, we had 10 blocks or 11 blocks in our, in our course in the Air Force. And so you take a test every five or 10 days, depending on how long the blocks are. So usually people would just kind of do a, what's called a brain dump, right, or a flush. And they thought that the stuff from block one would not be pertinent to block 10, and so they would forget it. And so I taught both block one and I taught block nine and, block, and taught block 10. So I told them, I said, this is stuff you're going to learn. It's going to carry you through the whole course. And they didn't really believe me. But when they, when they saw me again in block nine, I said, okay, remember that stuff in block one several months ago? No, maybe, yes. Well, we need to remember it because it's important now. It's the same thing, right? Jesus... He taught for three years. He, he walked everywhere. He taught. He preached. He was teaching them this stuff in three years. He crammed it in everybody's head. And he wanted to make sure everybody remembered it and knew it and what to pass on. And so we have to do the same thing. And we have the benefit of coming every week and hearing the word. And we have access to all kinds of books and things you want to read about. And people who just study this or another passage or a letter or something like that, they write books on it. So we have access to so much information. It's crazy. We have to sort through it and be able to teach it. And so today is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, right? This is going to give us a little bit of a background, you know, to what is probably the most well-known teaching of Jesus. Like Jerry said, this is his favorite sermon. You can't, you know, we came in this morning, saw the thing up on the, on the screen. But it's also quite possibly the least understood. And as John, as John Stott says, probably the least obeyed of all his teachings. Because there's a lot of stuff in here like, well, that's not for us. I and mean, we want to kind of make things either be for the first century church but not for us. Or, you know, we kind of try to play the games of, of what they're saying and what they're not saying. And I would add that some parts are used today, but non-religious groups also try to use it. They try to throw some of these teachings back in our faces, right? We know that the famous one is usually the judging. Don't judge me. You shouldn't be judging. And so that gets kind of thrown around and used incorrectly by everybody. And so it's important that we tell them when people are sinning, you know, what it means and why they need to repent. So I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 23, and I'll read the verse 2 in chapter 5. I'll save the rest of it all for as we go through it um, for later weeks here. So this is what Matthew says in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 23. He says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. And he heard them, and he healed them, excuse me, Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. In chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, when, he, so when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, and saying, he goes through, and we're going to cover, we'll kind of hit the high, highlights in the last point of the sermon, um, of what the sermon is about. So he has a lot of people following him around all over the region. And so 
he's making disciples, right? His disciples came. So some of the apostles, you know, in chapter 4, verse 18, he starts, he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. So they're there already in the crowd. Other people were there as well. Right, so here's the main idea. Here's the big point of, that we're going to look at. And this is kind of the overarching main idea for the whole series. Is that in order to make disciples, we must be disciples. Right, in order to make disciples, if we want to multiply our congregation, if we want to multiply the kingdom of God, we have to be disciples first. You can't just bring people in because you think it's a good, you like to come and hang out on Sunday mornings. It's fine if you do. I'm glad. I hope you do like to come here on Sunday mornings. It should be because you are a Christ follower and you want other people to be Christ followers as well. So we're going to look at, okay, what is the Sermon on the Mount? On the Mount? Who is it for and what's it about? Right, kind of high level stuff, right? So as we read it, this discourse is when Jesus went up on a mountain or onto a hillside and began to teach his disciples. It's not known exactly which mountain he gave his sermon on, but the traditional site is on the northeast shore of the Galilee. It's known as the Mount of Beatitudes. You know, people spend a lot of time and they can kind of figure some things out and things get named kind of closer to the source of everything. So they kind of have an idea of where things are at. So Jesus sat down, right? And he's, he's smart. He knows how things work. So he uses the geography to naturally amplify his voice. Right, if you've ever been in canyons or anywhere like that, you can yell or talk and your, it echoes quite well. Uh, you, that's why you also see when we went through Mark, is it year before last? No, this, you know, last year, we see Jesus using the boat and the water a lot of times too because water also amplifies your, your voice and your sound. So he's using this geography as well and he went up there to kind of rest, but he also knew everybody was coming around, so he said, fine, I'll teach you. And so he begins to lay out, again, this is early on in his ministry for preaching and teaching, he lays out what it takes to be a Christ follower. Where he's laying this out, saying, here's what it's going to take to become one of my people. And so, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins to preach or announce, the, as the word is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But what is the kingdom and what does it look like? Right, so that Greek word for repent means a complete change of mind. You have to change your mind of what you're doing, where you're going, how you're doing it, from what you're doing now to what you're doing, what you want to be doing, or what God wants you to be doing now. Right, and so that's what that means. He's telling you to repent because he's here. The king is back on earth. He is here. You know, as we celebrated the incarnation, that's what it is. The king has now returned. And so this is sort of a reset of the Jewish culture. Sometimes it's called counterculturalism. Culturism. Right? The Jewish culture had either isolated itself or had been infiltrated by Hellenistic or Greek culture. And it's also, it also allowed itself to be influenced by the Romans in their daily life as well because they were ruled by Rome. You know, the Greeks had already come over through after the Alexander the Great and his four generals kind of took over the split of the kingdom. You know, that Greek uh, Hellenistic influence kind of got into everything, and so you become less Jewish, you become more worldly. But other people like the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, kind of the Greek ruling, or the Jewish ruling class in a sense, they were trying to isolate and say, let's be more Jewish, right? And so the Sermon on the Mount is given in this context, and it explains the righteousness that belongs to the kingdom, and it also describes what human life and human community will look like or should look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. 
right? That is, he's saying, this is what it takes, this is what it looks like to be in our kingdom, right? So, if you ever had training classes or school, sometimes you we have the ideal situation, like this, this is how things should be. And then everybody says, well, yeah, but this is how it actually works, right? And so we see this in everything from school to, to friendships to politics to whatever else, right? We see these things happen like, well, this is how I think it should work. And this is how it actually is working. And sometimes, unfortunately, they're very different. And this is how, this is what it is. And Jesus is resetting this, the culture saying, if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to follow God, this is what it needs to look like. And so, as we've gone 2,000 years now, it needs to be, we need to make sure we're constantly being reset to the right thing that God wants us to do. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is extremely important for us. And so also going up to the mountain, though, Matthew gives us interesting um, imagery, and Jesus is doing it on purpose, most likely because he's calling the Jews back to the time of Moses and the Exodus of Deuteronomy. So before they entered the promised land, Moses gave a series of sermons recounting and teaching the highlights of everything that happened over the past 40 years when they were in the desert. Right, so Jesus is using this saying, look, I am just like Moses, only greater. You know, I am the one Moses prophesied about and talked about. And so he uses this mountain to kind of do the same thing because the Exodus is the most important, um, one of the most important events in Jewish life. And they understand that and they see that, wow, Moses did this and now this guy's doing it. Hmm, maybe there's some parallels here. Right, because in those books in Deuteronomy, God wanted Moses to remind his people that they are holy and they have been set apart from the world. Right, our behavior and our outlook should and can be different from the rest of the world of unbelievers. Because we follow Christ, we follow the triune God, right? So this, this is really the key of being a disciple of Jesus. Our behavior and our worldview is set or focused on the triune God. That is what, where, we, where we draw our strength from, right? So this is who it's for. It is for the believers. It is for the people who are now what we would call disciples or Christ followers or Christians. The people who are the elect of God. Anyone who wants to be considered a Christ follower. Right, and so when the Hebrews left, though, they took Egyptians with them. Right, when, they, when they left on the Exodus, they also grabbed other people that were there that weren't, that weren't necessarily Hebrews, but they were in Egypt. They were either Egyptians or other, other cultures, and they kind of took them and absorbed them as well. Right, so this isn't just one group of people. This is everybody who is going to want to become a Christ follower. Right, and we see that Jesus talks about this. Jesus administers to the Jews as well as the Gentiles. He administers to everybody, and Paul also loops that in with all those letters, right? Because there's people who were Jewish, become Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He has to tell, teach them how to get along because they really weren't, the world wasn't set up for that, in a sense. Right, but even these people that left with the Hebrews, they essentially become Jewish. Right, Mo Moses' father-in-law was not a Hebrew, but his family has now worked into the Jewish family tree because they became followers of God. They swore on the mountain that they would follow God. And so Exodus and Deuteronomy, God has, has the people listen to the law, and then they swear that they will follow God. And so Exodus 29, 
Verse 45 through 46 says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and I might dwell with them, dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then Deuteronomy 29, he says, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your fathers, to, the, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? He's bringing them, he tells them the law, they go over the, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, and they say, all right, do you want to be part of the covenant? Do you want to sign the covenant, essentially? Right? Because they were a covenant people. And so this covenant, though, extends to the Gentiles as well. So Jesus came and instituted this new covenant. Right? And then we're going to do the Lord's Supper, right? And with this new covenant in my blood. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17, says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, right? Things shift from just a building to us being the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Right? And Peter also understands the same thing. Jesus came to bring in more, in more people into the kingdom. Peter reminds the new churches that he's writing to that the reason they, one of the reasons they're enduring all this suffering and changes in their life once they become Christians is because they are Christians. They are now different. Right? They are set apart. They are even though they're from different locations, different cultures, different languages possibly, they are now one people. They are the people of God. And so Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness in his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? And we see that, and this is, this is an expansion of the nation of Israel into the nation of God and the kingdom, the holy kingdom. But a lot of times we hear God is giving them the law, God is reviewing the law. Jesus is kind of going over the same thing here. He says, well, that's, they're just, these are just expectations. These are just rules i got to follow, and you know, to be a member i got to do this. If you join a golf club, you got to... Do this, do that, pay your dues, whatever it is, right? And so they think Christianity is either just a club or they think it's just a lot of rules and a bunch of things that I don't really need because I already have enough rules. I have to be at work at a certain time. I have to stay a certain amount of time. I have to do certain jobs. I have to do this. I have to do that. Tell my boss when I want off. Ask for this. You know, there are people like, I don't need it. Right? And so unfortunately, the way we carry out certain things in our church life becomes or can become legalistic. I read a thing on Facebook this morning. It said people were asking if coming to church or missing church was a sin. Exactly. That was my look too. Now there are reasons it makes it sinful to, not, to skip church, yes. But the, the fact of not coming to church should not be considered a sin. But this is where people are at sometimes. This is where we all get to. And we're all guilty of it on certain things or whatever it is. Should I see this or that? Should I watch this? Should I do that? Right? It's important we ask those questions but it's also important we ground everything in the word of truth. We understand what the Bible says about what we're asking about. And then we have to make some decisions sometimes on, because it doesn't cover everything. So we have to kind of make some decisions. We have some freedom in our beliefs and what we think that God wants us to do. And we really need to check our hearts of why we're asking these questions. I think I've talked about it before is, 
Are you asking so you can get out of something? Are you looking for a loophole? Right, well, it didn't say I couldn't. Because actually, like, in the, in, the, in the military, in the Air Force instruction, and I'm kind of Air Force enough today, and I apologize, but in the Air Force instruction, it doesn't actually really say you can't have a beard. There's, there's kind of a loophole where the wording of it sort of says you, you sort of kind of can have a beard. But it's understood that you don't shave, or you have to shave, right? It's, and that's what we do sometimes. We, and I'm that way, I'm, that's kind of my personality sometimes, that I will look for the loopholes to get away with stuff. You know, push the bounds. Sounds terrible as a pastor, maybe, but but we all do it, right? And I'm not saying it's right, but we need to make sure we're doing it correctly, and that's why we want. I want to go through this, you know, so we understand what Jesus is telling us is expected of us in the kingdom of God. So, what does this new life mean, right? What are the expectations, as it were, of this Christian life of this new covenant that we are either in already? You know, most of us are already in, uh, or or that we need to tell people to bring them in. Right, so what is it all about? So the sermon extends over what we have as chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it covers a variety of topics, right? So first, Jesus starts off with the blessings of the kingdom, or, or what's called the Beatitudes. Uh, that's a word it means, blessings. Right? So uh, he uses the formula, blessed are those, blessed are the poor, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who hunger. Right? And so he's saying these are blessed. People are blessed when, when they're blessed by God. Right? They're blessed by God to handle these things if you have these things. And we're going to cover it more as we go through. Uh, we're starting next week with this. Right? Blessed are those who God redeemed. Right? God redeemed his people from Egypt, and he's reminding them of, the, of his blessings before giving them his law. And so Jesus is kind of following the same format. He's saying, look, if you're going to accept this covenant, you are going to be blessed. And so Jesus moves on then to reminding the disciples that they are the salt and the light of the world. And then he explains righteousness in terms of God's view in the kingdom. Right? And we, I think we covered light and salt. We went through Mark, but Matthew has a, a similar take on it. But it's important that we are here to give the world flavor. You know, we don't need to be thrown out because, if, as, as, as Jesus says, it's no longer good for anything but if the salt loses its taste, how can it maybe be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And I think that's some of what we see today with the church. The church has lost its saltiness. It's lost its ability to, to flavor the food, to do things, so people just kind of throw it out. So we need to be able to regain, and again, Jesus, we, we need to figure out how to do this. Because you can't make salt salty again, but there's a way to become, be, be make sure we're coming from the right rock. And in chapter 6, then, Jesus explains true holiness versus hypocritical holiness. Right? What, what do we see? What does God see as holiness? What does God expect as holiness? And also, though, what does the kind of the world see or the world was going on at his time and our time of people being hypocritical, kind of just not following or obeying the rules, the standards? <clears throat> and then Jesus goes on. Tell them what true wealth, where true wealth and stability come from, right? They come from him. He wants to make sure because people are chasing after money. They're, they're chasing after whatever they're worried about, where they're going to get their next meal or their next clothing or their next housing. You know, the people are living on the street, especially around here. It's a very big problem. Um, and some is self-induced and some is not. I want to make sure we're clear on that. But 
people worry about certain things, and so Jesus is trying to allay our fears and allay our, you know, get us centered on him because he's the one that gives us true riches. He's the one that can feed and clothe us as necessary. And also, since the kingdom is a community, right, we're not just here by ourselves living our own little bubbles, being Christians by ourselves. We're Christians as a group. Knowing how to treat people is important. And so Jesus gives these expectations to this area. Right? He, he explains what it means to love your enemies, to go the second mile, make sure you're telling the truth to people and about people. And so then Jesus closes his sermon with a call for action. He warns the people that there are only two ways, the narrow way and the broad way. And so the broad way ends in destruction. And so he's, he's calling these people to action. He wants them to make a decision. He's kind of asking them to say, do you accept this covenant? Do you want in? Do you want to be one of my followers? Are you going to just kind of go along because everybody here is in the crowd? And it's easy just to kind of hang out in the crowd and say, I was there, but you're really not doing anything. Right, and sometimes we do this. I go to church. I'm a good person, right? I go to. Doesn't account for something. I go to church every week. I don't miss the sinful act. I do. Or, you know, I do it. I'm not sinning, right? But but we, but we're not. We need to do more than that, right? It's it's more than that part. Because any good preacher does not just want to pass on the knowledge. He doesn't want to say, "Here you go." I'm just kind of dumping information into your heads. He wants people to do something with it. He wants people to make a decision. When we talk to, G, talk to people about God, we want them to make a decision. Now, they have to make that decision in the time of the Holy Spirit, right? Because the Holy Spirit's working this out through his time, and he's using us either fully or part of people becoming saved. So we can't just walk away and think, well, I talked to 15 people about Jesus today, and nobody said they wanted to be a Christian. And you can get disheartened, and you say, well, I just don't want to evangelize anymore. You know, you're going to get, if we're, when we start going out the door to door and wherever else we're doing, people are going to close the door on our faces. Right? That's just the way it is. They don't want to hear. They don't have time for this. So we need to make sure we're prepared for that. But we need to make sure also that we are trying to get them to come to decision as the Holy Spirit leads us and leading them to him. Right? So that's important not really a sidebar, but it's also important to make sure we have our expectations. Because really the question is, do you want blessings or do you want curses, as Deuteronomy was, was, talks about throughout the book. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right, this is a decision that must be made. Are you in the covenant with God or are you not? And it sounds harsh, you know, especially for people, for loved ones who maybe have a problem with it or something like that. Um, again, you need to have the Holy Spirit lead you through this, that process when you're talking to people. But, you know, this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so, so now we're going to transition into the Lord's Supper, though, for this part, right? So this is a celebration of God's grace, not human achievement. It's kind of why we do this, and why we do it, when we do it, or how often. So the power of the sacrament is not found in our ability to mediate or meditate deeply, but rather on the way in which God's, Spirit's, God's Spirit uses this celebration to nourish our hearts. Right? It's a covenant we make. We do this in remembrance of him with the, with the idea, that knowing that he was going to his death. He was paying for our sins. 
right? And so when he's teaching them these things, when he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he doesn't actually mention anything about his death yet. He's just teaching, trying to get people kind of small bites maybe to, to get them down the road. He probably couldn't have chucked everything in there at once. Say, do all this, and by the way, I'm going to die in a few years. You know, he, he couldn't do that yet. He had to make sure that everybody was kind of on the, the right page. And this, so this is a meal hosted by Jesus, right? He, he was the one serving everybody else at this meal. He was holding the dinner. He had already set everything up ahead of time even when they went to find the, the donkey and, and find the upper room and everything else. He, he hosted this meal. But the Lord's Supper is not an end in of itself, but it points beyond itself to celebrate God's grace and covenant faithfulness, right? God coming back, we read in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and other, there's a lot of other verses that say God will be with us, right? We read it in Matthew during Christmas. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. And so he came down, he came back down, he, he came back to earth to be with us. And then God the Holy Spirit is here also with us. And so the Lord's Supper is a sign of a relationship that is covenantal, not contractual. And we've covered that before, right? But a contract is something, you sign a contract for your car. We'll give you the car, you pay a certain amount of money every month. That's a contract. If you don't pay it, we'll take it, right? But this is a covenant, it's something different because the covenant is God knows that we will not be able to make our, meet our obligation. So he's okay with that. He's the one fulfilling everything for us because it's his grace that he's promised to us. And also the Lord's Supper is deeply personal, but it's never private. Right? We can't take communion in our, in our living room just because we want to. Not because I have any special power over the elements and make them do anything special or anything like that, but because it is also a communal action. It's, it's an action of the gathered congregation which represents the church in all times and places, right? It is something that we do. And so it's important that we do this, but it's also personal because you are the only one that can be right with God for you. If I'm okay and Veronica's not, then Veronica shouldn't be taking communion if she's not right with God herself. Right? It's not because she's not the she, she's saved through me through marriage or anything like that. And so from the Didache, which is an early church teaching manual, I think I've mentioned a few times, right? So it was kind of how to be Christians for the new church people, right? They kind of wrote this manual. And so we have it. And then we were instructed to pray over the bread and the wine or the juice in this way. And so I'm going to pray over the elements. And then we'll have a couple of the guys come up and pass out the elements. And then we're going to read this, the, the Last Supper story from Matthew 26. And we will... Take communion. And so the Didache says, We give thanks, we give you thanks, O Father, our Father, for the life and knowledge you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And blessing the wine, it says, We give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And so you guys, a couple of guys come up to pass out the, the juice and the, the bread.
Good. We're ready. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these elements. We thank you for this covenant made in Jesus' blood and his body for us, that we can be accepted under this covenant with you, that we can have uh, be benefactors of your grace and beneficiaries of your grace, and uh, we know that you are the one, uh, the one God who does all these things for us. And so all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and pass out the elements, please. <coughs> If you're a Christian, you can do it. If you don't have to be a member of the church, by the way, if you are a born-again believer, you are allowed to take communion. Um, that's the way we close off the table. If you're not a believer, don't take it. So Matthew records the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. He says, while they were eating, so they're already having the, 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 the Passover meal, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, which we've already given, he said he, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And they ate the bread. Verse 27, Matthew goes on and says, When he had taken a cup, so that's Jesus, when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, for many for forgiveness of sins. And they drank the wine. And Jesus goes on to say, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that was the, you guys can go ahead and sit down, thank you. And so again, this covenant that we do, this, this reenactment is a symbol, is a reminder of this relationship we have with God. Right? This is the important part that, again, it's personal for each of us, that we are saved individually through Jesus. Right? We are one of the many, however many, many there are, I don't know. It's not for me to know. But this is why we do this. Right? This, this, is, what, this is part of what we do. Um, and so as we go out this year, right, as we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount for the first several months of the year, our goal is to go be able to talk to people about Jesus. Right, that is what we want. That is what we're here to do. Um, and I think we're at a good place to do this. Right, so let's go ahead and stand. And we will uh, sing our last couple songs. And we'll kind of have a state of the church for the new year. Yeah, if you want to, you guys can bring your glasses up here. Take it easier. We will sing Change My Heart, O God. Once the band is ready.
Krishna Hare. 